Welcome, welcome, welcome. It is tea time. Miss Liz here back and I have an afternoon tea to bring to you. And today we're going to be doing some history. That's right. We're going to do some shipwrecks, rescues, cars, crews. We got it all today. And I have the incredible guest, Larry George Jensen, that is joining me to share on his incredible book. That's right. We have the book here too in the studio today. So I will be popping that up, up and down once in a while. But let's get the disclaimer and let's get the little intro and bio and all that good stuff all done. And then we will get to sharing some tea with Larry today. So the disclaimer for Miss Liz's Tea Time live shows. Miss Liz, myself, is going live using StreamYard. Before leaving a comment, please grant StreamYard permission to see your name at StreamYard.com. Please be advised that the content brought forward for any Tea Time show hosted by myself, Miss Liz, is always brought forward in good faith, however may bring forth dialogue and opinions that are not representative of my platform. The facts and information are perceived to be accurate in the given time of airing. All Tea Time guests and audience participants are responsible for using their good judgment in taking any action that may relate to the discussion. All the content brought forward may include discussion for some where they may be emotionally at risk. It is significant to know that this show is engaging in discussion, forms, only to offer and inspire awareness and connection and is not providing therapeutical advice. If you have any questions about this disclaimer or the panelist discussion, you may freely contact me, Miss Liz, through my email at bookingmissliz at gmail.com. Moving forward, should you choose to voluntarily participate in today's show in any aspect, I, Miss Liz, welcomes you. And should you decide that the show is not made for you at this time, I respect that and I will see you at a later date at a later show. And that is the disclaimer for Miss Liz. So let me get my guest in here and, and I'll get his bio and we'll have some good old strong tea today. Welcome, Larry. Hey, Hi. <laughs> it is nice to see you and it is nice to know the sound is still working. So that is good. Right. So Larry, I'm going to let you introduce yourself a little bit and then I'll, I'll bring in some of the stuff that's in your bio on that. But I'd like you to introduce yourself to the audience and viewers that are listening right now. Okay, well, my name is, of course, Larry Jorgensen. I am, I guess what they call in the business, I'm an old news dog, which means I'm a journalist who doesn't quit writing, even after he gets out of it uh, sort of as a career. Um, I was brought up in a um, weekly newspaper, uh, starting actually when I was in high school, and uh, went from there to a a uh, daily operation, it went into radio, then got into television, uh, did a lot of freelance. It's always been writing, journalism, writing, investigative reporting. Um, I've, I've worked for uh, the wire service, you know, UPI, uh, done a lot of assignment writing. Uh, basically, uh, it's just uh, I like to investigate and then I like to reveal what I've investigated. And I was going to get into that a little later in the show, but what got you into journaling? Like, was it a passion or was it just the interest of history, reporting? What was it all about? Well, it's a strange story, Liz. Um, when I was a, a little boy, there was a show on television. The early days of TV it was called The Big Story. came on once a week, and it was a show that featured newspaper reporters and uh, have a different reporter every week and it would be his big story his biggest and i thought that is fascinating and I, you know i was what was i six seven years old at the time well as things went on i had some advice from um, a very important person in my life 
who said, well, what are you going to do when you grow up? You know, and I said, well, writing fascinates me. And he said, I have a good friend who was with a major newspaper, daily newspaper. And he said, if you pursue this and get good grades and go to, and he named a very good journalism college, go to this college and graduate, I will see to it that you get a job by that newspaper. Well, I didn't do exactly what he said, and I didn't exactly go to that newspaper, but that really got me thinking about a career in writing and in journalism, and I've never looked back. I felt it's given me a rewarding life. It's giving me, there's never two days that are the same, you know, especially like when you're in like television news. I mean, you walk in in the morning and you don't know what's going to happen, but you're, you're ready for it and it makes, it makes for an exciting life. Well, it's very adventurous, right? And you, like you always never know what's coming, right? Until That's you start right. writing. That's right. You, just, you uh, show up and wrestle with the bears, you know, see what's going to happen. <laughs> so, Larry, I, I've been promoting this incredible book, Shipwrecks and Rescues. For anybody who would like to go and grab a copy, I did put the, the website up for you to get a copy. This is an incredible book. So what got you into the shipwrecks and rescue? Well, again, it's a case of you know, all of a sudden getting interested in something. The, the story takes place in the tip of Upper Michigan, the, what they call the Keweenaw Peninsula. And it's a place that in the summertime is very beautiful. Uh, right now, they've got a lot of snow up there already. But uh, anyhow, I was up there on vacation two years ago. I love to go up there. And I had seen uh, just a small article in one of these little tourist magazines that where I was at, there had been this shipwreck with cars on it and that the cars were rescued. I thought, that's never happened before. So I, I got fascinated by it. I started you know, investigating and talking to people and uh, going to some of the uh, historical museums and archives and so forth. And I realized that it is a story that had never ever really been told in total. Uh, and the photos in the book are absolutely fantastic. I was fortunate enough to be able to get photos from, it was the family of the Coast Guard rescue crew captain. He, besides being the rescue boat captain, he also was a photographer. He was an amateur photographer. And he took some fabulous pictures and because of his family handing them down to historical societies, we were able to utilize them. So there's a lot of that in there and a lot of others that we found through other sources. But it was so strange to me that, that no one had ever put all the pieces together as to how the, the ship wrecked, how the crew was saved, and ultimately how the cars were saved. These were 1926 Chryslers who um, had been built obviously in Detroit and they were headed across Lake Superior for Duluth, Minnesota. Well, obviously they didn't make it, you know. So I just, I got fascinated by the story and, and really got into it. And I really dedicated a year. And for me, that's, that's, that's pretty quick to do a book in a year. Um, but I was fortunate to get a lot of help. And uh, so we were able to get it out in a year. And... Um, it's amazing the reception it's received. Uh, I'm, I'm getting calls and orders from all over the country. I thought, you know, I thought, well, people that like shipwrecks in the Great Lakes, you know, they would be interested in this. What I didn't really stop to realize is another group of people that are very interested in the book are people that are old car collectors. Because here's a story of some 1926 automobiles that were rescued from a shipwreck, you know? And so it's a story about cars and ships. And uh, it has really opened up uh, the book to a lot of possible 
markets and a lot of places for people to read it. Well, I wanted I wanted to know what what was it about this story that really got you like fascinated to tell the story, and why wasn't this story ever told before? I think the thing that fascinated me was that I had read a lot about, because I go up that area, about shipwrecks. You know, I mean, there's been 6,000 shipwrecks on the Great Lakes, but yet this one has never been recorded on the shipwreck maps or anything. So that alone told me this is something that, that has sort of been ignored. And when you talk to people in the area, they'd say, well, yeah, we heard about that, but they never really had the story of what it took to rescue those the crew. The crew got lost in the snow and almost froze to death. And then what it took to get those cars off of that boat, the boat was basically trashed. It, it hit a reef and a big gash in it, and, and they, it was a bit, almost immediately declared a total loss. So there, there was no hope of getting the boat back on the water. Um, and to, to get the cars off of the boat and onto this reef, which is often Lake Superior, and to get them from there to the shore and ultimately get them down, down uh, lower Michigan to, to back to Detroit. Um, it's just I, just, I thought it was fascinating. How could this not have been written up before? You know, one of those little hidden treasures that you find sometimes. Um, you know, the, the, the crew got off the boat first. The, 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 the accident happened the end of November. And Lake Superior in November, they say, is the worst time to be on there. I mean, that's November's when the Edmund Fitzgerald went down. You know, so that, that tells you the kind of weather you have on Lake Superior in November. So what happened, the ship carrying the cars got into a tremendous storm. The captain said the worst storm he'd ever seen. And it was literally the storm picked the ship up and tossed it onto this reef and created a big gash in it and there it sits. So first of all, we have to get the crew off the ship. They were able to cut a lifeboat free from the ice on the boat. And they would take the lifeboat and put a few people in it, go to shore, pull the lifeboat back until they got everybody to shore. Um, but now they're in, they're in very deep snow. And to make matters worse, they thought the only way they could survive if they could find their way to this little town called Copper Harbor. It's right on the tip of that peninsula. Well, what happened, the captain thought that, that what they had done is they had gone west of Copper Harbor. He saw a, a landmark that he thought was what they call Brockway Mountain. And he thought he saw that, which would have put him west of Copper Harbor. Well, the fact is they weren't west, they were east of Copper Harbor. So when the crew gets on land, they think we've got to get to Copper Harbor. They start walking east. They're going the wrong direction and they get totally lost out there. They have no food. Some of them are poorly dressed in fact, all of them were really poorly dressed for what they're getting into, but some of them actually had like Oxfords on for shoes and that. So they're out there in this deep snow. And by the second day they're out there, they literally think that they're probably going to die out there. They're going to freeze to death. They're already bad cases of frostbite and so forth. So they were pretty close to giving them help. It was only because the Coast Guard had been called out, the rescue ship had been called out for another boat that had gone ashore and needed to get their crew rescued. They were not in, in any kind of danger like this crew was, but they needed to, they needed to be brought to shelter. So the, the Coast Guard crew goes out to get the second crew uh, rescued and they go right by the abandoned uh, ship, which by the way is called the City of Bangor, 
and uh, they go right by the banger. They can't see it. It's storming so bad. When, so they, they rescue these other crewmen. They're headed back to Copper Harbor, and all of a sudden they see the ship. So they, the, the, the abandoned ship. So they go in there, and there, obviously there's nobody there. So they continue on, and all of a sudden, up in a little bay, here's the crew struggling, trying to get to stay alive and just keep going. So the captain pulls in to this little bay, and he yells at them. He says, build a fire as soon as I take these crewmen to the town, I will come back and get you. Build a fire so I know where you are. And that is actually how they got rescued. Um, oh, wow. You know, and and then they get to this town, and we're, the, the town is, you know, population probably three dozen. You know, I mean, it's, this is 1926. It's not not many people there, and, it, and they're isolated by snow. So they get to the town. Now the town has got both crews, the crew from the first boat and the crew from the, from the, the banger. And what are we going to do with them? Where are they going to put them up, you know? Finally, they, because the second crew was in pretty good condition, they decided they could take them to the Coast Guard rescue station, which was about 14 miles away along the lake. The other crew, there was a family in town, and we write about this family in the book, that said, we'll take them in. And they took them all in. And they had, luckily, they had just slaughtered two pigs for the winter. So they had food. They had, as, a, as the uh, story goes, they had a well-producing cow and some chickens. So they finally are able to get these crewmen who are really in bad shape. Some of them can hardly walk. They get them to the house. And they just collapse on the floor around this big stove and begin to thaw out. Well, some of them are pretty bad shape and had to be ultimately taken by a, a special snow vehicle into the hospital, which was about 40 miles away. Others ultimately got there by horse-drawn sleigh. And, uh, finally, but it took several days to, to get them into the hospital, which was in a town called Calumet. It was about uh, 30, 40 miles to the south down the peninsula. So that is what happens to the crew. They do finally all survive. And little by little, as they are able to be released from the hospital, they then go back to their hometown. Except I've been told that some of them that stayed there, they were there like four months, the, the ones that were in bad condition, that some of those found their nurses to be of liking and ended up marrying a nurse and settling in an upper fence. There was a reason for it all, right? right. <laughs> <laughs> what a way to find a wife, anyhow. So, so that's, that basically is what happened to the crew. Now, in the meantime, we have an abandoned ship on a reef with 200 and some cars on it. Well, they happen to be Chryslers, and it happens that Mr. Walter Chrysler says, I want my cars back. So <laughs> he hires a salvage company out of Duluth, Minnesota, and he says, I'll pay 140 whatever, $45 a car for everyone you can get back to me. So what they did, first of all, they posted a guard out on shore to watch the ship on the reef. And they waited until it got so cold that the water around the reef froze. It froze hard enough that it would support a vehicle. And you'll see, there's a picture in the book of how they built a ramp from the ice to the top deck of the boat, and they started getting the cars off of the boat and onto the reef. Now, the cars that were on the upper deck were covered with snow and ice, 
and there's pictures in there that show the um, chopping the ice away from the cars and and getting them you know down the ramp. The ones there was there were also cars st stored in the lower part of the boat, so they weren't quite as bad as far as snow and ice. They get them off the boat, okay? They get them on the reef. Now what? Now what are you going to do, right? So someone thought, well, it, you know, the crew got to shore. If we can get them to shore, we can build a road to this little town of Copper Harbor. Well, they got about a mile and a half, two miles into the road project, and it just wasn't working. Someone said, wait a minute. The ice along Lake Superior, along the shore, is frozen hard enough that we can drive the cars along the shore. So oh. they did. One by one, they drove the cars along the shore and got them to the little town of Copper Harbor. Now, it wasn't an easy task because some of the cars either didn't have batteries or the batteries were dead. I mean, you can imagine. Cold <laughs> yeah, but all that rain or that coldness, right? So they, what they would do, the ones that they could drive immediately, they would drive them to town. They would take the batteries out and take them back out there and put them in another car. And eventually they got all 200 and some of these Chryslers to the little town of Copper Harbor. Well, now what are you going to do with them, right? You got 200 and some cars, population 36. Obviously, you're not going to sell them in Copper Harbor. So the... The, the the deal was that if you could get the cars to the same town where the hospital was, to Calumet, they could then get them on a train and have them taken back to Detroit by train. Sounds like a plan. Problem is, it's 40 miles and the road doesn't get plowed in the wintertime. The snow is, in some places, the snow is 10 feet deep, the way it's blown in there. So in that area of the peninsula, there are two counties that make up the peninsula. And it took the road crews from the two counties working three weeks to clear that road open. They actually had to bring in a special uh, snowblower from Minnesota because theirs wouldn't even handle it as it got closer to Copper Harbor. But they finally, after three weeks, get the road open, what road there was, and it wasn't much. In the meantime, they've been hauling fuel by, by sleigh, a tank on a sleigh, up to Copper Harbor so the cars have got fuel to get back down the road. <clears throat> so what happens? They finally get the road open. Now here's the deal. They come to you and they say, tell you what, we'll pay you $5 to drive that car from Copper Harbor to Calumet. And a lot of high school boys that day volunteered for the job, you know, make a fast $5. Well, if you think about it, you know, here, here you are, you're driving this, this brand new Chrysler. And at the end of the trip, you're going to get $5. Well, you've got a brand new Chrysler. You know, some of them didn't quite make it down the road. <laughs> Not many, but we know for sure a few of them didn't quite make it down the road. And uh, we did, in fact, find one that was owned by a family, handed down through the family for 60-some years. Wow. And that car has over 200,000 miles on it. And you can see it today. It's in a lighthouse museum in Eagle Harbor, Michigan, right on the shore of Lake Superior. And if you look at it, there's an ax mark where they cut the ice off of the car to get it off the ship, you know? Oh, it's, wow. It's amazing. And that, that car, and we tell the history of the car in the book. You know, who owned it? who owned it next, you know, the family that owned it and so forth, and how it finally ended up in the museum. Uh, it's quite a treasure to see. So you've got that situation, but we've still got so much more to the story because now we have the abandoned and ship without cars still sitting on a reef. It wow. sat there for 18 years. People... 
people would go out to the shore, they'd look at it, they'd take pictures. And, and even when, the, when it was wintertime and there was snow and ice, they could actually walk out to it. And there were pictures of people by the, the, what's left of the ship during the wintertime. Well, it sits there for 18 years. What happens? World War II. And what do we need? We need steel, right? So they get another salvage crew, and they go out there, and they figure out how to cut the, the ship up into pieces and to get it off, get it into land so it can be used in the war effort to, to create products out of steel. Wow. The interesting thing is that there was a second boat that also crashed about three, four years later that wasn't too far from the banger. So when they, when they cut up the banger, they also cut up this other. So they had two boats that they could salvage for the war. So, so basically, that was the first salvage. But it wasn't the last one. There are two lumberjacks who are working in the woods cutting down trees, and they realize that the salvage crew didn't get everything. There's still a lot underwater, you know? And they thought, you know, we can make a lot more money if we can salvage what's left of that boat than we can cutting down trees. Yeah. So they concocted, and we have a picture in the book of this vehicle. It's a, like a big old truck with big wheels on it and a big winch on the back. And, and what they did is they went out there and they were able to drag pieces of the, of the ship that was left out of the water and take those in and sell them. So they were sort of the, the midnight uh, salvage crew, you know, unofficial. unofficial. <laughs> so the, the ship has fascinating story to it. The people that uh, rescued the crew, uh, they went on in the, in that area, in the county, he actually ran for sheriff a few years later. And they moved to what was the county seat and uh, he became sheriff. And of course his, his wife went with him and she sort of became the under sheriff, you know? And it's interesting that uh, they, um, would have a, a case where she'd take care of the jail. That was her job. And uh, if they'd have a case where somebody had committed a crime or some sort of a misdemeanor or whatever, if he was given his choice of pay the fine or go to jail, he usually would go to jail because Ida was a heck of a cook and they knew it. He <laughs> <laughs> wanted a good meal. But you know, in the book, I was able to, to, in putting the book together, I was able to interview the, the great-granddaughter of that couple. Oh, and awesome. she, she came up to the Upper Peninsula one time to meet with me. And she, in the, we'd been talking back and forth, and she said, I want to come meet with you. She brought some of the pictures that are in the book. But more importantly, she had dug through her some boxes, you know how you leave boxes in the attic, you know, she had found one of her grandmother's boxes and in it was a card, a Christmas card that had been addressed to the family from the first mate of that ship. And it, it, it's in, I've reproduced it in the book. It is a card thanking that family for saving the lives of all of those crewmen. And it, it almost brings you to tears when you read the you read the card. I mean, how much they appreciated the fact that that family was there. You know, that family fed them twenty some crew members for how many days, not knowing whether or not their food supply would be replenished before spring. They were just you know they would they just did what they had to do. They took care of these. Crewman and and to meet with the with the granddaughter was just amazing. You know, it was her her dad uh, was just a youngster at the time, and he was one of the ones 
that brought the crew through the snow after they landed at, at the little town of Copper Harbor. He guided them through the snow over to their house. And he was just a youngster. And afterwards, he said he couldn't understand why the, these crewmen kept falling down. Well, they were so badly hurt, you know, frostbitten. It was all they could do to, to walk, you know, it was like a quarter mile. To the house, you know. So it was, yeah. And the 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 story about the ship, you know, and the people involved in opening the roads, and the people involved in saving the crew, and the people involved in getting the cars down there. I mean, you know, you you often hear the saying, "It takes a village." Well, in this particular case, it took an entire peninsula to actually create what became my book. You know, amazing people, just absolutely amazing. It's, it's tough enough to live up there in the wintertime, but to have to wrestle with all that too, it's really tough. And again, it's 1926. Right, and back then the history of the connection and community, you know, the barter and trade, everybody helped each other. And I think that's what, what I really enjoyed about reading the book. And the book is well written. Like it, Larry, it is an easy read. It, the pictures are amazing. It actually takes you back in history, right? Because you look at the pictures and you say, wow, amazing what the community did, what people did for each other without even thinking, you know, we just come all together and we support each other. And like you said, 200 cars plus were saved. Like that's amazing back in 1926. And then the ships were used for war, the war. So the story just connected. And then the love stories and then the marriages and all of the connections, right? It's really incredible. And I think that's what I really wanted to have you on Tea Time for is to get that story out there and to get the history out there of the connection and community that we had back then and how we can bring it back today, you know? And the importance of knowing the history. Like you mentioned, there's 6,000 shipwrecks. You know, how many of those do we actually know about besides Titanic? Everyone knows about Titanic, but they don't know about the other ones. And all these incredible little ships that had, well, not little because they had 200 cars. But So how many cars were actually lost during that shipwreck, Larry? Well, when, they, when the ship got into the storm, the, the cars on top, on the deck, there was one, the way they secured them, there was a long chain and they would then attach another chain from the car to this long chain to secure them to the top of the deck. Well, one of, one of the rows of cars, it was like 12 cars on this one chain, the chain broke. So there are 12 or 13 of those cars on the bottom of Lake Superior. Oh wow! And there was one other one that, when it hit, when it hit the, the reef, a car was tossed off. And you'll see in the book, there's a picture of this car being hauled in on a sleigh because that's <laughs> what that one is about. Right. That that one came off of the boat when it hit the reef. So it landed there and it was it went it was able to be uh, washed ashore so and one of the crewmen uh said when when he got on shore there was this this remains of this car there he said it just looked like a ball of steel to him you know oh but wow that car was hauled out on a sleigh horse-drawn sleigh and the uh the auto dealer, the Chrysler dealer in Calumet actually bought that car for $25. Could use it for parts of that, you know. Uh, the other thing that we haven't talked about, on the boat, besides all the Chryslers, there were six Whippets. Now, the Whippet was a car made in Toledo by the Willis Company. And it was called a whippet. That's after a, an English dog, you know. There's, a, there's, a, there's a, a, an ornament on the hood of the dog and so forth. But somehow those cars had gotten from Toledo to Detroit to be loaded on the ship. And they apparently had a buyers waiting in Duluth as well. Well, when it came time for rescue, 
Walter Chrysler was not about to rescue six whippets, right? So he wanted them gone. <laughs> that, was, that, was, that was competition. And we know probably all six of them stayed on the peninsula. Wow. And we were able to find two of them. One, there's a picture of in the book. And it, it's it, it's in a shed that's falling down. We tracked the history to it, and it was um, ultimately sold. Another one we were able to find. There's a, a lady up there who was very active in the historical society, and she bought one. She bought a whippet at an estate auction. You know, decades ago, but she remembered that, and she told us about it. Showed a picture of a whippet, and she had bought it. Now that's two of the six. Probably the other four ended up in a junkyard someplace. Who knows? But they didn't go back to Detroit. You know. So, so Larry, how much was a car sold back then in 1926? Well, there's a. We've got an ad in the book of a, a dealer ad showing. You know, here's the new Chrysler's come and get one. And depending on the model, there are a couple of models, you, it, generally in the $800 range. Wow. You know, so, so, oh, Walter, you know, he had to pay $140 a car to get it back. And in those days, I guess you could just kind of touch them up and put them back on the market, you know, put them up for sale. You couldn't do that today. But uh, it's, uh, again, Times and in those days, you know, the automobile business was just starting to really boom. So there was a real need for this transportation. Anyway, the roads were bad. You know, 1926, we didn't have these big semis hauling loads of, of uh, cars down the road. So there, there was a lot of dependence on the ships to deliver new cars, especially along the Great Lakes. Um, you know, there is a sister ship. The, 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 the company that owned the Bagger had 12 auto hauling ships. Uh, the company was called Nicholson. They were out of Detroit. Two years after the Bagger uh, accident, there was one of their sister ships called the Senator was hauling Nash's from Kenosha, Wisconsin which is where the Nashes were made, was hauling them up Lake Michigan. Again, a bad storm. And an ore carrier from Escanaba, Michigan, was coming down, headed to the, the steel mills in Indiana, and they crashed. And because the, the ore carrier was so heavy, it put a major gash in the, uh, in the senator, and within minutes, that boat and all those Nashes went to the bottom of Lake Michigan. Unfortunately, it took six, uh, the captain and, and five crewmen with it. And those, those Nashes are on the bottom of Lake Michigan today. And wow. people have said it is the largest uh, Nash museum in the world. But it's all underwater, you know. But <laughs> imagine what's under that water because there's so many shipwrecks that I have never even heard of. So imagine what's under under there, right? Well, and they're still finding them, you know. Um, it's interesting. Every once in a while, a story will pop up or maybe an area of the water has gone down and they find another, another remains of a shipwreck. And, you know, Lake Superior is so cold that... If a, if a ship goes down, it's preserved. It'll, you know, the, the famous Edmund Fitzgerald um, has been there for, for decades now. And one of the people that provided information for me for the book is a, a diver. And he has actually gone down to the Edmund Fitzgerald. And the bodies are still there. The, the boat is as it was, you know. It, um, so the, if, when you when you go down in Lake Superior, you're there. Yeah, it, it's amazing. The pictures that you have in this book are amazing. I, I highly recommend every, everyone who wants to know some history on shipwrecks and rescues, 
and this whole story, like the, the pictures that you have in here, Larry, are like time travel. And I love old cars. I'm a junkie for old cars. It's like I tell everybody, if you want to know Miss Liz, show me an old car because it just kind of there's something about the history and the vintage and the details that were put into cars back then that are not put into cars today. Today, it's just a flat banner or a top right. where back then it was the wood, the antique, the, the detail, the workmanship that was put into each of the cars is just incredible. Well, that, that car that is at the museum up there, um, the, the reason it's got 200,000 miles on it, the family that owned it, they were so proud of it. They would, anytime there was a parade or something going on, they, they'd drive it and show it off, you know. Um, and it, it actually went through, and there's a picture in the book of it going through the annual vehicle inspection. And the, the uh, Michigan official that was doing the inspection said he'd never seen a car that old or with that many miles on it, you know. But uh, the, the, the one man who owned it for a long time, he said he would drive it every day in the summer and in the wintertime, he would go out and start it up every day just to keep the engine running good. So he was able to, to keep that car and keep the 200,000 miles on it. It is just incredible. Like the story itself is just incredible. Do you think that it'll make a movie or a documentary on the, on you this? Know, it's interesting Liz, that you ask that because um, I've had at least three people come to me and say, this should be a, a movie. This needs to be in video. You've done all the work on it. We're going to see what we can do. And there may be a, 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 fee, a it's. I don't think it's long enough for a movie. Of course, it could be, you know. But it's oh, I think there. It, there's amazing pictures in that book. Amazing storyline. The the flow of the book is really nice. It's an easy read. Like if you're not a big reader, it, the pictures just take you in the time travel. Like amazing. I've read it a couple times, and I'm just like, oh, that's so cool. And I, I'll look at deeper in the picture and. And I just love the history and the story and the the messages that came along with the story as well, like the marriages and the connections, the family, the communities, the, the young boys coming up and saying, I'll drive the car, you know, for $5. You don't hear that story anymore. Now, if somebody would say there wouldn't be 200 cars even getting the Chrysler, I don't think. I think they'd all be gone. <laughs> no, it, it was truly a community effort and the community being a very long and beautiful peninsula. Uh, anybody who is listening, if you ever want to go to a place that has a lot of history and yet is still pretty, I don't want to say rugged, but pretty natural, the Keweenaw Peninsula of Upper Michigan is an, I go every chance I get every summer, I try to get up there because it's fascinating. And again, you know, we were talking way back about my background. Well, I was in television news in Green Bay, Wisconsin. And at that time, the copper mining was big up there in the Keweenaw Peninsula. And there was a major strike of, of workers that ultimately caused the shutdown, permanent shutdown of all the copper mines up there. And as a reporter, I spent many, many times up there covering that story. And uh, that's when I really fell in love with the Upper Peninsula. Um, later, as we got into snow and, and snowmobiles started to happen and I became a snowmobiler, that was my favorite place to take a snowmobile uh, and to ride in the wintertime. It's, it's just gorgeous. It's a gorgeous country. The people are amazing people, just like the book shows them, they are that way. They are there to help you. And uh, and uh, an interesting kind of little funny story, people that live in Upper Michigan are called Youpers, Y-O-O-P-E-R-S, Youpers. That's because they live Upper Michigan, they live above the Mackinac Bridge, you know, the Big Mac connects Upper Michigan and Lower Michigan. So if you ask somebody, if you say, well, if you're from Upper Michigan, 
and you live above the bridge and you're a youper, who are the people that live below the bridge? And they say they're trolls. Oh. The trolls that live below the bridge. <laughs> Going old fairy tale, you know. Michigan is a really beautiful state. I I have stepdaughters that are in Michigan, in Gaylord, Michigan. So, I I've been to Michigan a couple times, and it's a really a beautiful state. But I've never been to that part of Michigan, so I I, I think I need to make a trip up there and check yeah, this out. I would I would recommend don't go in the winter time. You know, they've already had. Of course, you've probably got snow where you are too. But but they had this week like 16 inches of snow. Wow. Well, that, that's unusual even up there this early in the year. There, and I, I blame it on Heike Lunta. Heike Lunta, you know who he is? No. He's, he is the Finnish god of snow. Oh. He's, he's a Finland <laughs> god of snow. And, and his name is Heike Lunta. And he does a heck of a job up there in, in the upper village. Yeah, we don't have snow here, but in my hometown, they do have snow. Uh, back home, they do have snow already. Uh, where I live now, no, we have rain, but snow is coming our way. So, <laughs> <laughs> so before we wrap up your tea time, Larry, and I thank you again for sharing the incredible story of the shipwreck and rescue and all that. I want to get to know what your tea is. So if I ask you what your tea is, what would your tea be, Larry? Well, mine would be try for extra adventures. I like try, it. Try extra adventures. You know? And it goes along with who you are too, Larry, because you've always tried to get into the adventures, you know, and understand yeah. the adventures. And that's part of journaling as well. So what message would you have for the kids out there about shipwrecks and getting involved and getting to know them? Well, I think there's so much out there. And the, the, that's the thing that I've found, too. I didn't realize the intensity of people that are into shipwrecks. There are shipwreck and maritime museums all over the Great Lakes. And, and there are books that have been written. Uh, if someone is really into this as a hobby, there are uh, places you can go that uh, some of the divers have annual conventions that'll that'll uh, bring their story what they've found lately you know and uh, it's it just it's absolutely more uh, more prevalent than I thought it would be of people that are truly into the Great Lakes and the shipwrecks and the stories that go with them all the way back to the start I mean when you look at it and you realize it was a main source of transportation for how many how many decades and then where we are now now we we see on the great lakes we've got cruise ships on the great lakes you know it's become a great a, a tremendous vacation to get a, a cruise ship and tour the great lakes so it's come a long way so larry have you have you found out if there's any survivors still alive from this shipwreck um, no, there couldn't be. There was uh, one of the ones that I quoted uh, in the book was from a script, a, a, a gentleman who had done a, a TV interview about uh, in the seven, 1970s. And I had talked to him. I said, do you think any of these people are still alive that you interviewed? He said, no. He said that was in the 70s. And he said most of them... Um, have passed on. He, the one in particular that I had mentioned to him, he said he knew that he was elderly at the time of the interview. So, but we, what we have been able to find, just like on the Coast Guard captain, we've been able to find his his uh, daughter and and grandchildren. So a lot of them have stories. I would love to find somebody who had so a a relative that drove one of the cars. I found a couple. Oh, that would be cool, right? Yeah. <laughs> and you know, the other thing, as long as we're talking about what, what am I looking for, the one picture that is missing from the, all the pictures in that book, there is no photo of those cars being placed on the train 
in Calumet. And the local newspaper covered the story twice. And, and they said what a tremendous rescue it was and, and how there were uh, people sent up from Detroit who knew how to do this. And you think somebody would have gone over and taken a picture. My only, and, and believe me, I even ran an ad in the newspapers because I thought somewhere you've got 200 and some cars that were driven. And somewhere, somebody's grandfather must have driven one of those and must have taken a picture when the cars got to Calumet. I've talked to archives, I've talked to historical groups. There's a, a, a gentleman in Marquette, Michigan, who has a tremendous collection uh, of old, old photos. They're all categorized and you could go in there. And, and I did buy some photos from him, but he said he has never seen that photo. No one's seen it. So wow. it is, there's a reward pending. Wanted. <laughs> he wants that picture. <laughs> a picture of, of Chrysler's on a train headed back to Detroit. Well, you would think that the train station would have took the picture. It's just amazing. You know, the, the you've got the uh, northern... Michigan University and Marquette. You got Michigan Tech right there in in Houghton, Houghton Calumet. You know, I talked, and the people at at the archives at Tech were tremendous in finding things for me. <laughs> no picture, no wow. picture. There's one uh, historical group that have a has a museum in Hancock, uh, which is just south of Calumet. And I'm hoping they had a flood in their building and a lot of material was misplaced. You know, they're going through remains of the flood. The flood was a couple of years ago. And the woman told me if there's a picture, we've got it and we'll eventually find it. So we'll see. You just never know, right? And there's an, a reward out there. So if anyone is listening or watching the replay later, if you know of this picture, reach out to Larry. Larry, it was an honor having you on Tea Time and that, and having this story brought to life. Uh, what message would you have for any of the kids that are looking into history, becoming a historian or becoming a journalist? What message would you have for the kids out there? Well, I think the important thing, if you're gonna write, is write about something that you're, you're interested in, you're passionate about. I mean, I got totally addicted to this story. Uh, that makes the task a lot easier when you're in love with the task. You know, a lot of people will write, and and I'm guilty of it. I've done. You'll write a book of something that's happened in your family, and it's important to you. But you don't, you don't you know there's not much distribution that kind of yeah. book amongst the family. That's all uh, where it goes. So my advice is find something that you're passionate about, and that a lot of other people are passionate about. And you'll not only have a reward in writing, but, you know, writers write and painters paint because they want somebody to appreciate what they've done. And if yeah. you write on something that a lot of people are interested in, you'll get a second reward because they appreciate what you've done. And that's true. I've had people in... Upper Peninsula come to me and say, we are so glad you did this. Somebody needed to do this story. That's, that, that's a better reward than $22 for a book. You know, yeah. that, that's a personal reward. Well, just the storytelling, right? Just bringing back the history. And, right. You right. know, like this, this book is like a time travel. Like it is amazing the way that the book is written and it's not a very big read. So it's a very easy read as well. And the pictures inside are really incredible. Just to look at the pictures of the history, how they were able to take these pictures in the freezing cold, you know, somebody taking that picture, but nobody taking that picture on the train. Like we need that train picture. <laughs> so if you ever get that train picture, Larry, I want to know that you got it. Okay. <laughs> Well, I've, I've enjoyed being with you, Liz, and uh, we're working on a couple other things, so maybe sometime we can come back. 
Absolutely. I would love to have you back. And Miss Liz always does a reunion show in December where I bring back the guests that were on Tea Time for the year. So you get to meet other incredible guests that were here as well. And there's a lot of people that have been on Tea Time in 2022 that have a lot of history and a lot of incredible stories that I think would align and work good together. Uh, Jim Curtis and you, I think, would really align really good because you have a lot of the history, a lot of those amazing stories that need to be told and heard. And, yeah. and I think that it's incredible to have you share this with the world. And if anybody would like to reach out to you, Larry, how could they reach out to you? Well, probably the simplest way is leave a message on the website. Cause we do have a website called shipwreckedandrescued.com. Or if they want to call me, you know, they can call me or I, I give you my, my email address. They can email me, although the, you can also email through the website. But my email is simply GL, like George Little, GL Management 40 at gmail.com. Um, phone number, I'm not afraid to answer the phone. It's 337 591 1937. You never know. If somebody calls, they might have a good idea. And you might have that picture. Another <laughs> one of those adventures, you know. And I really hope that this book does get into a movie or a documentary, at least, because it really needs to be told and heard around the world. So I'm, I'm going to hope and pray that anyone who's listening to Tea Time tonight or will pass this Tea Time along to somebody who might be able to do that and make this possible, I would be honored to have you reach out to Larry or reach out to myself and I can connect you guys in any way. And again, Larry, I want to thank you for sitting and having tea with me and bringing a strong tea. Try extra adventures. Why not? Right. Let's have some adventures in life. Let's make some memories and let's write about them and bring some history back to life. And to all the viewers and listeners around, thank you for tuning into tea time with Miss Liz. I really appreciate all the support and love from each and every one of you. And I will be back on, let me pull it up, October 27th with a guest from the United States again. That's right. We're going back to the States. Miss Liz is in Canada, but we're going back to the United States. And we have Jay Lynn Ellis, who will be coming in and speaking about historical friction. So that's right. I like to bring in the history. I love history. I love hearing stories. And I love people who write books because writing is deeply important and we need to keep passing that on to the next generation. So again, Larry, any final words before we wrap up your tea time? Just, I so much appreciate the chance. You know, I've done a lot of interviews, but to be able to do this tea time, to really tell the whole story, that that's a treat for me. And I appreciate that. Thank you so much. Well, thank you so much. And thank you again for joining me. And let's stay in touch and, and let me know what's coming next. Like if you have anything, Larry also has another book out called the Coca-Cola story, I believe, right? Coca-Cola trail. Coca-Cola trail. So grab yourself a copy of that as well, because that looks like an incredible book too, which I think I'm going to be grabbing because I want to know a little bit more about Coca-Cola and the history of that incredible company, because that's still around. So there's a story there too to be told. So again, Larry, thank you again for joining me and thank you to all the viewers and listeners. And if you have an idea or a topic that you would like to see on Tea Time with Miss Liz, please just message me at my email at bookingmissliz at gmail. And stay tuned because tonight at dinner time, I will be releasing the guests for November. And there are some incredible guests that are coming in November and some topics that might be a little bit touchy and hard, but they need to be brought to the table. And that's what I do is I serve strong tea, the tea to teach educational awareness that we all can make a difference when we serve our true selves. So thank you for joining me. And I will see you next week, same time, same place, not the same time at 7 p.m. We have an evening tea. So I will see you then. And again, thank you, Larry, for joining me. Please don't leave. I'm just going to close up the show and I will talk to you in the back of the studio.